hey, you're listening to Chew on That, and here's what we're chewing on today. And it isn't just some ethereal, mystical, spiritual book. It's God's chosen delivery system to teach us how to live. And because it was written in such a different culture and climate to the one we live in, it can be difficult to understand and difficult to incorporate into our own lives. It was written in a place and time that was different to ours, but it wasn't written to people who are different than us. They had all the same struggles and concerns that we do. So it's imperative that we dig past the differences and search for the similarities. And the way we do that is through context. To understand the real message, we have to understand the background. So we learn about what motivated the people who wrote it and and what made the people they wrote it to tick. Which is why we started a series on the book of Romans by talking out of the book of Acts last week, because that's where we meet and begin to understand the person who wrote Romans. And fair warning, it's going to be a few weeks before we actually even get into Romans chapter one. So we started last week by talking about the who, and we're going to continue digging today by sharing a teaching we're just calling what. Hey, hi, this is Pastor Scott, and you're listening to Chew on That. Today, my special guests are Dave and Jama DeShazer. Say hello, Dave and Jama. Good afternoon or morning or wherever it is you are when you're listening to this. <laughs> hi, this is Jama. I love having them here. Like, they're so cute. Like, they weren't supposed to be here, and I'm so glad that they are, though, because they are precious. And so today, we're going to talk about um, Sean's message in the series of Romans, the greatest letter ever written, where he talks about who, what, what? Who was last time? There's so many that I get them confused. And so it's easy for me. But before we get started, I thought maybe you guys could share a little bit about yourselves. Like, tell us like your story. Jamie goes first. <laughs> well, Dave and I have been married for 48 years. We have four children, seven grandchildren. We, each of our children were born in a different state. So that tells you a little bit about our background with um, Campus Crusade years ago. Uh, We moved out here almost five years ago now to come to uh, Life Church, be a part of the church. And uh, we're so excited to be here. God is doing wonderful things in our lives and in the community. As Jamie said, we were all over the country. We were in Arizona and Louisiana and Ohio and then out to Seattle. And like she said, a kid in every state. We were 20 years with crew. And uh, then we spent 10 years working for Alpha and helping churches around the Northwest learn how to help people look at Jesus. And we've just had an exciting time. And this time out here has blown us away with everything that, that we've been able to see God do. So we're excited to be here too. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. And David Jamie, like maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but David Jamie, like we work together on city serve stuff, which is a, a great outreach that we're working on uh, together all the time to unify our churches and to um, serve our community and love our neighbors. And, you know, I love that. And they're uh, a really big asset for us at life church downtown. And so everything I feel, I feel like everything I do that's worth anything, Dave and Jamie are involved in. And so I feel like they're um, actually there to blame for everything <laughs> good uh, that happens with what we're doing. So anyway, we're going to jump right into it because Sean's got a lot to say. We'll start right here. 
And it's important we embrace the complexity and lean into its concepts, especially as Jesus followers in the face of a skeptical society that has attempted to paint us as naive sheep simply looking for spiritual solace or an ecumenical escape from the challenges and realities of this life. It's an opinion of us that was echoed a few years ago when media mogul Ted Turner famously said, Christianity is for losers. Uh, my first thought uh, when I listened to this for the second time was, wow, there's nothing like being broadsided by life. Mm. Um, to realize how little control we have over things. Um, I lost my dad very unexpectedly at 17. I lost a sister when she was 39. We had a stillborn grandson. We've experienced a job loss along the way. And um, to know God's presence through each of those experiences of life, um, if that's a crutch, I'm going to keep using that crutch because he has been there and spoken comfort and peace and um, joy even in the midst of those things. Do you feel like, I feel like in my experience, it's been one where my faith, my, my crutch, my whatever, right? That early on when I went through difficulties, I wasn't quite so clear that it was God seeing me through it. I still felt like I was fighting the fight myself and that somehow I came out, you know, not on top, but certainly, you know, I don't know. Okay. And so it was like in, in my early times, I didn't see, I didn't recognize that it was God. Was that the same? Was that your same experience? Like when you talk about like what you've gone through and how many times God's seen you through, was it your experience or did you always know that it was just God? Um, for me, I think it, it was definitely God's grace stepping in because that first major thing of losing my dad, um, uh, there's no explanation other than God was there saying, I'm here, Jema. And the things that he showed me and um, the experiences that I went through, uh, there's no explanation other than it's God. And, and it was God's grace. It wasn't anything that I did. Um, he was just there for me in each one of those times. Mm, that's good. And I think when you look at Turner's statement about Christianity being for losers, when you look at the roll call of people that are phenomenal leaders in the country, in the world, you run into people that are followers of Jesus all the way. And I can't begin to call them losers. I think when people, no matter how successful, break down and look at the evidence for Jesus, look at the lives of people changed by what he does, they come to the conclusion that, man, I need to look at this too. Because you can't explain the changes in people by just what people do. It has to have some influence from outside, something greater than them that helps them make the transition, the change that they make in their lives. Is it possible that people like Ted Turner, or, I mean, we all know people that will, you know, make fun of us or poke fun at us for what we believe or whatever. Is it possible that they have a different understanding of who Jesus is? I mean, I mean, do you feel like, like, I feel like I, the Jesus that I grew up with, the Jesus that was of my twenties and even my thirties, I could see where you'd make fun of that Jesus or that those kind of Christians, right? Do you feel like that it's a matter of depth of your understanding of who Christ is? Many times I think people get an impression from well-meaning, but sometimes misguided people that, that 
aren't modeling the Jesus of the scripture and the Jesus that wants to empower us and lead our lives. And so there are people that have been hurt. There are people that have been, this just doesn't work for me, but it's not Jesus fault. It's just, how do we apply it? How does that come out in us? What are the mistakes made? And have we gone to far enough to help overcome those mistakes with people that we may have made them with? Mm. Yeah, that's good. I dig that. The apostle Paul was intelligent articulate and committed to his calling. Like a skilled attorney, he presented the case for the gospel clearly and convincingly in this letter we call the Book of Romans. It's no surprise then when we look back on what we learned last week about Paul's background where he aspired to be a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, that God would call him to be the wellspring from which this defining, defending document would come. So Paul, right? Paul Paul comes from a place of renown, of, you know, I don't know that he was famous, right? He's not, he wasn't like the world's greatest Jesus people catcher, right? But he was like, he had renown, he had a reputation, he had a position, he had a title. And so then he finds himself on the road to Damascus, thrown from his horse and, you know, meets Jesus and then everything changes. And Dave, before we got started, you were talking about how, like maybe God picked Paul on purpose or was that Jamar? Oh, Jamin, sorry. <laughs> no, I think he did. I think both of us think that. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> well, God takes who we are, our experiences, our skills, our um, life, and as we turn them over to him, that's what he uses to reach those around us and to accomplish his work. And, you know, as I look back over my life, uh, some of the things that I've learned, some of them have been hard to learn, but today the things, the areas where he's using me or I have strengths are in those very things. So he takes all of those experiences, all of our background as we turn them over to him and then he uses them for his purposes. You know, think about that. I know Dave's got a thousand things to say. You can see them all over his face. But let me just say that, you know, when I think about that, when I think about what you said about Paul and about, I'd been in your own experience, like I think from early on, I thought that I wanted to be in ministry, right? But I saw it as a chance to be a showman. I saw it as a chance to, you know, speak really well and entertain people and make them laugh. And that's still certainly a big portion of <laughs> I was going to say what yeah. I do. <laughs> but like, but like I wasn't ready. I didn't have... I didn't have anywhere near the experience. I didn't have anywhere near the context. I didn't have anywhere near the connections that I have now. And so not that I'm like this, you know, king of ministry, but I, I mean, I'm in ministry now and like the whole thing's different now than it would have been if I'd gone into ministry when I was 25, you know, I built a reputation and I built a name for myself and like, it, you know, people know who I am. And so then God's leveraging that. Yeah. Well, I think with sometimes too, God will take, people that don't have all the gifts and equip them to have incredible impact in ways that even when we look at it, we go, how did that happen? And God uses. And so he will take all of us and the potential for all of us from right where we are is to be used in today and tomorrow for what God wants to do in and through us. And I've looked at places and I just 
sit there and go, I get to do this. And I don't know how I get to do this, but I'm here and I get to do this. And, and, and it's not like I planned it or I prepared for it from the standpoint of this is on my plan to do this, but a door opens and God pushes through. And so he equips us where we are. And I think with Paul, he had a special equipping with language, with heritage, that he could have both feet down in each side in the Gentile and the, and the Jewish world and be effective in both. And so God did an incredible choice when he picked him and, and sent him out. So Paul was this prolific author who wrote 14 books of the Bible. And the books he wrote are called epistles. So they were letters. And they're all letters he wrote to churches he started except Romans, which is more like a like an elaborate theological essay than a letter in it. And it wasn't written to the church in Rome, it was written to the believers in Rome. So we're gonna talk about that more in the weeks to come. But every concept in the Bible is contained and condensed into Romans. Okay, so I never knew that, that last statement that Sean made about how the everything of the Bible, right? Everything, the whole gospel message is laid out in Romans. And I, I guess I never recognized that. Was that something, did you know that? I didn't know that. I, that was news to me too. You know, it's kind of, when, when you said that, I stopped and thought, oh yeah, you know, this is there, this is there, this is there. All of those things are there, but like, it's just like, oh wow. Knowing this book is really, really important. Yeah. And I, I love that he pointed out the fact that this was the one epistle that he wrote to a church that he hadn't founded when in fact it was to a church that he wanted to like get in with, right? Like he wanted to not, not a church, but a group of believers because he knew that in order for him to reach even further West that Rome, he'd have to, he'd have to launch from Rome and he needed support and backing and, you know, agreement with the believers in Rome. And I, I just never, I never knew that. So when you look at that as the book of Romans, you could totally see why he's like making a case, right? So it's not just like admonition. You feel like so many of the other epistles is like, Hey, why are you guys keep screwing this up? This is how it's got to be. I was there with, you know, Stephen, or I was there with whoever, and we told you this and now you keep screwing it up. So that wasn't, that's not Romans. Like Romans is like, I feel like Romans to Paul is like the sermon on the Mount was to Jesus. Like, it was just like, let's, I'm going to wrap this all up. Just in these like three chapters here where Romans is kind of the same thing. Let me just wrap up the whole thing for you in this one letter. And so that just makes like, gosh, my gosh, Romans is so important. And, and like you said, Jamie, I feel like sometimes we, you know, or, or was it Dave? Anyway, we, <laughs> we pull things like we have verses that we remember that are tent poles of our faith. And you're like, oh my gosh, but so many of them are in the book of Romans. And you could totally see why. And the primary purpose of this letter was to reveal and deal with the grace of God. And there was no one better qualified to write about this idea. This man who himself claimed to be the least of all saints and the chief of all sinners understood and explained grace better than any of his contemporaries. And looking at the darkness of his past helps us recognize his gratitude for God's grace, which isn't an easy concept to understand. In fact, in 500 BC, Socrates wrote a letter to his friend and student Plato declaring it may be that deity can forgive sins but I do not see how. So grace is a concept that has escaped the greatest minds the world has ever seen. In some conversations I had with Sean about this topic, um, we talked about how grace, while present, you know, for in the Jewish culture, 
it wasn't until Paul and the Gentile, the ministry to the Gentile, to Gentiles, where grace took on like a, a bigger role, right? Because, you know, in the Jewish culture, as far as I understand it, you did things, you followed the law, you did clean things, you did, you know, you did all that because that's how you could attain, you know, righteousness, or that's how you could attain, you know, a closeness with God, that it had nothing to do with grace, that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a dispensation from God. It was something that you did. And so this was, this was a big deal to me because grace for me is everything, right? Like grace, because I I realized that a, it's not part of my culture to, I don't know, not eat meat pigs or not, that's not part of my culture. So that's not my way there. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's just not my path. So my path, my path has to be grace because there's no way that could ever live up to, you know, what's, what's demanded of me to live without sin. Well, I think too, when you look at the old Testament record, my devotional time has been spending a lot of time in a lot of the books, the early books of the Bible. And every time something happened, they had to make a sacrifice every time. So it was constantly sacrificing for forgiveness, constantly there. So it's easy to see why grace wasn't as big a deal. But when Jesus came after these thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices in Jewish history with different people in the whole history of that, one sacrifice covered everything. And that to me is a great picture of the magnitude of grace that comes about because of what Jesus has done. And Paul is accentuating that and showing how that works for us, how grace can be applied to us. I don't have to go to the temple and make another sacrifice because of this. I don't have to go and do that because of something else. He's done it. One sacrifice and I can buy in. And that is so different, but is such a great show of how much God did for us. The Apostle Paul says it's what bridges the gap between God's righteousness and man's iniquity. And clearly to Paul, grace wasn't in opposition to works. So we should be cautious when we try to make grace the opposite of works. Of course, works can easily become legalistic, which can cause us to become pious. But that's not works fault, that's our fault. The same people who become pious because of their works can just as easily become careless because of God's grace. Jema. <laughs> Are we on? Yeah, we're on. Oh, we're on. Okay. <laughs> I think grace and works and all of that, um, if you have authentic faith, you're going to be used by God to do the things that Jesus did. That's what he builds into us that care for the orphans, care for this, be involved in this, love your neighbor, forgive those that offend you. You're just going to do that stuff because that's what God is building into you through your relationship with Christ. Where we get in trouble is when we think the works justify things and the works are just an expression of what's already happened that out of the overflow of what God is building us, we want to help others. And it is tough and it is easy. What he said about it's easy to also get caught up in, well, God's just forgiven it anyway. I can go ahead and do what I want and take advantage of the grace. And then to me, that's, is that an authentic, it's not an authentic understanding for sure of what has happened when a person comes to Christ. 
I feel like this is the thing that's at the heart of the conversation of once saved, always saved, or that in fact, you can't do anything to lose your salvation as long as you had an authentic salvation to begin with. And if you, if you lose it, it's because it wasn't authentic, which seems like a, I don't know, like that could go round and round and round and round and round, you know, without a distinct answer. But I loved how you put it, Dave, where you talked about how, you know, our works in and of themselves don't pay the price, but they're what someone would do if their price was paid, you know? The evidence. The evidence, yeah. It's such a profound thing that God has done for us. And that willingness to, if somebody needs something, you give it to them. You're available. Uh, I think the illustration of you're not going to just, if somebody says something, uh, and they have a need, say, well, peace be with you. Um, you'll actually step in. And, you know, we miss stuff all the time and what we should do. Um, and God reminds us and helps us and encourages us uh, with just little promptings to don't say something, do something about this. I feel like for so many of us, we were brought up in such a way that, you know, like you better go to church. And you better make your bed and you better do what your mom says, your dad says, where it's, it, we, I think we talked about this at Life Church Downtown, like where it was a matter of, of course it's got, of course it's works-based, right? Like that's our, that's our way to get into heaven. We got to keep our nose clean. We have to do what we're told to do. We have to be obedient because if we're not, we'll go to hell. Right. Like it was a, it was definitely that kind of transaction. At least that's how I was raised. And that's how so many of the, of my friends who are Catholic or Lutheran or, you know, some kind of high church place that that's, you know, it's all about obligation and nothing about, you know, the grace of God. It's all about proving your faith. Well, maybe I could go into a childhood, <laughs> give you a little bit of my background. I was raised in a home um, where Jesus was honored, and I understood very early that he had died on the cross for my sins, and yet I felt really bad and probably also a little bit of pride in there that I thought, well, I'm really young. Maybe I can just be good enough and make it to heaven. And Jesus won't have had to die for me. And I had three sisters and, um, you know, sisters can fight like cats and dogs. And even though I was very young, my mom at the time must have been uh, working on us to be a little more kind to each other and not say, shut up, <laughs> something simple like that. So I thought, okay, maybe since I'm so young and I haven't done anything, I can just be good enough and I'll just not say shut up to my sisters. I'll say be quiet instead. <laughs> Well, that didn't even last 24 hours before I told one of them, shut up. But it's, it was something that even got, got impressed on me, even at that very young age, I was probably six or seven, uh, that I was never going to be able to be good enough to get to heaven on my own. And I'm grateful for that because he knows each one of us. He knows our personalities. He knows our tendencies. He created us. So he knows what we need. And I'm, I'm very grateful for those early lessons that helped me see that it, you know, it wasn't what I did 
but what Jesus had done. I mean, we hear a lot of people that will say when you ask them, like, listen, I don't need church. I don't need any of that, you know, craziness. I, I'm a good person. I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to heaven, right? Like, I feel like there's a lot of people that, like, that's their bottom line. I'm a good person. You know, I believe in God. I'm going to go to heaven. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to, you know, do anything else. And I feel like that misses the grace portion, that if you just feel like I'm a good enough person, I'm sure to go to heaven. <sighs> Well, why did Jesus die? If I can be good enough, then his death means nothing. And that's one of the things that is brought out that either Jesus' death is the most significant event of history or it's not significant at all. It can't be significant for some and not for others. I mean, if he died for all of our sin, he died for all of our sin. And if he said nobody can get there except through me, then nobody can or or it just doesn't matter. But to make this statement without investigating or to make this statement without really exploring who Jesus is and what he did is really sawing the limb off and you're on the wrong side of the saw because uh, you're basing everything on something you haven't looked at enough. Let me just take this one time. This segment's really long all of a sudden, but let me just take this one second to say that there's nothing wrong with exploring your faith. There's nothing wrong with like, like determining that your faith is real. You don't have to take your mom and dad's word for it. You don't have to take sister Augusta's word for it. You don't have to take pastor Young's word for it, that you can discover that in your own. You can doubt and investigate on your own. Like that's totally okay. It, Cause if you feel like you don't have a, you don't have a relationship with Jesus or a relationship with Jesus's people, because you know, wow, this is something my mom did. And yeah, I go to church. I'm good enough. I'm going to go to heaven. Well, that's not the life that Jesus has for us. And so if you've got to figure it out, if you've got to investigate, or if you've got to prove it to yourself, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, and if you live long enough, you're going to do that. Mm. You're all going to, we're all going to have things that hit us and we go, wow, I didn't expect this. And how do I handle this? We were talking to somebody this morning that is out of work and the emotion and the, the, what do I do now? Do I have to get another job? Do I have to do this or that? Um, but just the uncertainty uh, it's really difficult to have both feet planted midair and try to do something from there without a foundation. And I think that's what Jesus gives. There's a trend in our Western church world, and I've been a victim of it myself, a trend in the Western church world to criticize religion by contrasting it to relationship. But religion is not in competition with relationship. Religion is not a bad thing. Paul was very religious. Even after he was a recipient of grace, he carried out the unending cycle of ritual cleanings of platters and cups as well as his own person. He kept the weekly fasts between sunrise and sunset. He said the daily prayers in exact progression and pattern and number. He was religious and he was devout. Religion only becomes dangerous when it becomes legalistic. So I famously say that all the time, that it's not about the religion, that it's about the relationship. And I'm not going to backtrack on that. Like, I just, I feel like it, well, what Sean says is true, 
there's too much room for people to assume that they've got religion if they do something religiously. And there's just, that's just, there's just too many gray areas in that for me. And I I hear what he's saying about Paul, about how Paul still kept up all of his Jewish traditions and his Jewish rituals and his Jewish religion stuff, but I'm not Jewish. And so I don't have to clean up my pots and pans and my feet special or something. I don't have to do that. And so like, I understand that religion is important, that the idea of having religion is important, that you, that you are so committed to something that you're always going to do it. That's what religion means to me. But we lose sight in that because like Sean ended with, that it's too easy for that to fall into legalism. It's too easy to just rely on the fact that I'm getting something done or I'm observing the things that I need to observe and not searching for the relationship because religion is a symbol of our relationship, I feel. But I'm willing to hear another argument. <laughs> well, Dave and I were talking about this um, earlier this morning, and uh, the phrase that he used was spiritual disciplines. For us, uh, there are spiritual disciplines in our lives that help um, maintain and and keep that relationship with him fresh. And so if that's what you want to call religion, you know, we make it a point to get up in the morning and spend time, you know, reading our Bible, praying and um, but but we call them spiritual disciplines. And those are just there to help us keep that relationship with him fresh. Yeah, I totally buy that. I totally, totally, totally buy having traditions, right? And, and rituals, right? Like I totally buy that to help if you're doing it in earnest, if you're not doing it to check it off on like, like a tick box, right? Like if you're doing it, like I'm going to read every day because I'm getting something out of this. I see the worth in this, or I'm going to pray every day because I see the worth in this, but to do it because you got to get mass in or a rosary in or a, you know, light a candle in, then that's, I feel like where you feel like you, you'll have a false sense of fulfillment, well, Scott, then it's all about the heart, right? I'm doing this because my heart um, wants to know the Lord and experience him, not because I'm ticking off a box. Right. This is what I have to do. Or keeping myself out of hell. Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, I think most faith systems in the world, apart from Christianity, are based on what can I do to get to God? How many boxes do I need to check off to get to God? And Christianity blows that up because it says you can't do it no matter how many boxes you check off. It's all about what Jesus has done for you. And and so when we get caught in the all the doing it to do it, then it becomes more of a check the box and it's it's easy to oh, I need to have my quiet time this morning and you're not feeling it go to God and say I don't feel it I do that I have to sometimes say God make my heart right so I can actually do what I know I need to do to be able to do to you know function today but I don't feel like it but he welcomes that from us he loves us so much that it's like he says whatever you know don't be anxious for anything but in everything, pray. And I had a speaker one time say, do you ever want to sin? Do you pray about that before you do it? That's what Jesus invites us to do. And that's what Paul said in Philippians. He said, pray about that. God, I want to do this thing. And I know you don't want me to do it, but I want to do it. So change my heart. And he does. It's like Romans is teaching people to balance their head knowledge and their heart knowledge. 
So we see its primary purpose is to reveal and deal with the grace of God. And its primary emphasis is that both Jews and Gentiles are made right with God through God's grace because of Jesus. Neither are eliminated from the forgiveness of their sins and neither are excluded from the responsibility of their sins. The Gentiles weren't excused from responsibility due to ignorance because Paul showed that every man has an instinctive awareness of God, but has willfully rejected and excluded him from their lives. The Jews weren't excluded either because with all the privileges awarded them thanks to God's revelation of himself and the pride and the destiny awarded them as his people, they had adopted a smug superiority towards others and a stubborn, rebellious heart toward God. Take it, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I wish you guys could see David David staring wide at me. What are we even going to say? And I feel like there's a lot there for Sean. Like there's just, there's a ton where that, that neither side, like in this, in this letter to, to the believers in Rome, that there's neither side that's off the hook, that, that both Gentiles and Jews are on the hook, that they're both, you know, they're both in danger of missing a piece. Right. Where he says that Gentiles, because we all have an innate understanding of who God is, whether we profess it or not, or whether we say it out loud or not, or whether we allow it to bubble up or not, that we've all got it. And that, uh, and that for the, and that for the Jews, that, that they, um, they have an obligation that just because they're the children, God's chosen children, that that doesn't give them a free pass either. And so no one gets a free pass. And so I feel like, and yet we do, <laughs> you know, and yet we do. And yes, it's, it's grace, right? But we have, to, and this is the thing. Like, I feel like this goes back to the check boxes and this goes back to the staying out of hellness and everything else that in fact, it's about the grace and accepting grace and just saying, Lord, I need your grace. Like that's all he, I mean, is it distilled down to that? Is that really it? To, to get grace, to, to, to accept salvation is just to accept it. And that's what makes it so hard for a lot of people. If they don't have to feel like, if they don't feel like they've achieved it, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. And yet Jesus said, Paul said here in this letter, you don't deserve it, but God loved you enough that he gave it for you. And, we, I got a, a note from somebody this week that was talking to a friend that said, until I feel like I'm living right enough, I don't think I can go to Jesus and accept him. And that that's the wrong place. Because, yeah, that's the cart before the horse, right? Yeah, it's, you, you won't. You won't be living right enough to do that. So you've got to be willing to say, right where I am, <laughs> take me as I am. And that's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus said. And it's interesting that in, in different crusades that people had in, in evangelism, one of the songs they sang at the end was Just As I Am. And that that's how Jesus takes us. That it's not like you got to, wow, you're not almost there. You're almost there. Two more of this or three more of that or, or go serve the poor more and you're in. He said, nothing you can do is going to make it. How did church tradition get us there? You know what I mean? Like how did, how did church allow the tradition to look like, or for us to believe, right? That I'm not good enough to go to church. And if I'm not good enough to go to church, I'm not good enough to forget. And then, so I might as well just forget the whole thing. How did we land there? Like, I know we're not going to answer that, but I mean, like, I feel like that's, that's the church is culpable for that. 
where they just allowed people just to have this assumption that, well, oh, I'm never going to be able to get this right. I'm never going to be able to get all this stuff cleared out of my life to be good enough for God. When in fact, as you alluded to Dave, that's the carpet for the horse. We need God to get out of that stuff. That yeah. Well, I think one of the things we've done is we've wanted people to agree with the right things to be part of our group. That when kids would say, you know, I wonder about this. I don't know about this. Can you help me with that? And we make them give the Sunday school answer instead of saying, well, let's talk about that. We don't listen to questions that people have to help them answer those questions. We push back on the questions. Well, no, this is what truth is. You got to believe this. And as they're struggling to get it, we want them to jump to, we just do this instead of, well, let's talk about that. Let's explore that some more. Let's see how that works out. Hmm. I just feel like I know in my life, the things that I needed to get rid of in order to be good enough for God, like back to this way of thinking, I didn't have the, I didn't have the ability or the power to do that on my own. The only way I've ever overcome the things that disappoint God, the things that I was doing that were sinful, you know, big obvious things, you know, like whatever drinking or weed or whatever. Right. Like, but even small things, like even today, small things, I'm not getting over those things without God. Like, and so, and for us to think that we've got to be sinless in order for God to have us to your point, Jamie, earlier then why did Jesus need to die? All right. <laughs> That's it. Jamie came in with like 16 pages of notes and I thought, well, we're going to be, we're going to be rubbing right up against uh, an hour here. a page. <laughs> anyway, listen, you guys, it was really great having you. I want to do this again with you guys though, because this was super fun. I really enjoyed that. Dave and Jamie filled in at the last second and they did it brilliantly. And so I'm really glad that they were here. Listen, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends. Encourage them uh, to listen to it. You can also subscribe uh, on all your favorite platforms to the Chew On That podcast. We look forward to seeing you guys next time. Have a great day. Oh, 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 oh,